Good evening. If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter uh, 7. I'm going to read from verses 54 to 60. Uh, we're going to spend the evening in Acts 6 through 8, but I'll be in 7, 54 to 60. All right, Acts chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the testimony of Stephen. The faithfulness that he exhibited even in the midst of persecution and ultimately death. We thank you for what his life shows us about the type of character that pleases you, the type of character that is effective in spreading your message in our communities and around the world. And we pray that as we study the word, uh, we would understand who you want us to be. Pray that our minds would be open to know what your word says, not to be confused or lack understanding. I pray that our hearts would be submissive and obedient to you, and I pray your spirit would empower our hands and our feet to do your will. Father, I thank you for this time. I pray that my words would come from you. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, I read a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell is a columnist for the New Yorker. He's written several wonderful nonfiction books. But the, the kind of premise behind Outliers was to ask the question, what is it that makes particularly successful people successful? So he looked at all kinds of case studies. He looked, for example, at the Beatles. What is it that transformed these guys from basically a club band into the most popular rock band in the world within a few years? He looked at Bill Gates. Uh, What was it that turned this guy uh, from a somewhat nerdy high schooler into one of the wealthiest, most powerful computer guys in the world? And what were the factors that went into that type of success? Now, as, as I read the book, it was interesting. Some of the factors that Gladwell identified were ones you would expect. So uh, no one is surprised to learn that Bill Gates is smart, right? He has a high IQ. Uh, on the other hand, there were other things that were a little bit less intuitive. So he, even, he looked at athletes, for example, looked at hockey players in Canada, and he found that all of the really successful hockey players were born in the first two or three months of the year, January, February, March. And he traced it back, and it turns out it's because the eligibility date to play peewee hockey or whatever it is, is in December, right? So the guys born in January are a whole year older when they start playing. They're faster, they're stronger at those young ages, and they excel. And he figured out that success is a combination of talent as well as hard work, There's something he calls the 10,000 hour rule, where if you practice at something for 10,000 hours, you can become really proficient. So if you guys are trying to learn the guitar to impress your girlfriend, keep practicing, right? A lot, a lot, and try to study too. 
hard work. And then the last thing was uh, a certain amount of luck, being born in the right place, right time, with the right resources at your disposal. I found the book fascinating because uh, it asks questions that I find myself asking a lot. When I see somebody who is effective at something, I ask, why is that person effective? Maybe you do too. And I can remember thinking that even all the way back in junior high, looking at certain kids and going, why does everybody like that kid? Why is that kid more popular than me, right? Maybe he's taller, he's better looking, he's funnier, he's smarter, he's athletic, whatever it is. And I would go, what is it that makes that person effective? Maybe you've asked those questions. And the reason I share this is because as we look at the book of Acts, one of the questions that comes up over and over again in the book of Acts is, what is it that makes these men and women effective at spreading the gospel all the way across the known world within really just a few decades after the resurrection of Jesus. The apostles and the early Christians were not people who were particularly influential in their generation before they knew Jesus Christ. They were not wealthy. They were not prestigious. They were not the leaders of their nation And yet they managed to turn the world upside down. And as we've looked at the book of Acts, we've seen the ongoing story of Jesus Christ among these people and through these people, how the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads all over the world through these people. And we've talked about the role of the Spirit. Certainly it happened because of the power of God. But as you look at the lives of these men and women, you also notice that there are certain character traits that are present in their lives that allow them to be effective. There are character traits that they have cultivated and developed through a lifetime of knowing God and through years of submitting to the Spirit that allow them to be effective in certain critical moments when they have an opportunity to either turn away from Jesus Christ or pursue him wholeheartedly, when they have the opportunity to fall back and hide or the opportunity to act in a way that will spread the gospel far and wide. And as we look at our passage tonight, we see this guy, Stephen, and Stephen is an example of what I'm talking about. Stephen is a guy who certainly at a critical moment of crisis, he acts in a way that is in keeping with the character of Jesus Christ. He acts with courage and boldness and grace and truth. And yet as you look at Stephen's life, what you see is these are character traits that were cultivated throughout years and years of knowing God, knowing his word, and submitting to the Lord's work in his life. It's not as if Stephen hits this moment and all of a sudden, all of this character emerges for the first time. It was there. And as you look at this passage, the question I think for each of us to ask is, am I cultivating the type of character that will allow me to be effective in critical moments of my life as I walk with Jesus Christ. Most of us will never face a time where we will be martyred for our faith, but we will face moments where we have the opportunity to pull back from boldness in our faith in Jesus Christ or to step forward. We'll face those moments where we're called upon to share the gospel even when it's unpopular, when we're called upon to be pure and holy and godly even when we are tempted to act a different way, where we're called upon to be patient with others who don't know Jesus Christ, when we're tempted to be angry and lack grace, when we are called upon to make a critical decision or a critical action for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the question is, are you and I cultivating character now, day by day by day, so when those moments of pressure and those moments of crisis hit, we're effective? Because when those moments hit, we can't suddenly turn into people who reflect Jesus Christ. All right, so we're going to look at Stephen and ask that question. How is it that he is effective 
in responding in a way that allows the gospel to go forth as a result of his actions. What are the character traits that Stephen has? All right, we're going to go back to chapter 6. Look at chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, the first thing we see in Stephen's life and in Stephen's character is that he is filled with grace and power. That's what verse 8 says. Stephen is filled with grace and power. All right, let me just give a little background about who Stephen is. If you remember in the early church, right here in chapter 6, it talks about how the apostles, as they began to teach the word of God, they faced a conflict. There were Hellenistic widows, that is, Jewish women who spoke Greek, perhaps they had grown up in other areas outside of Jerusalem and then they moved to Jerusalem and they spoke Greek primarily. They were Hellenistic Jews and they were widows and they felt they were being neglected when it came time for the church to distribute charity. And so the apostles say, let's pick seven guys who are filled with the Spirit of God and we will allow them to do that task to make sure these widows are taken care of so we, the apostles, can focus on preaching the word. Stephen is one of these seven guys they choose. And he's described as being full of grace and power. And it's this really interesting combination. One commentator described it as a combination of sweetness and strength. It's not two characteristics you often see together. Grace is that characteristic whereby I extend undeserved kindness to another person. It's one characteristic of God in particular, where he extends through Jesus Christ undeserved kindness to you and me. Even though we are sinners, Jesus died on the cross, rose for us, and offers to us eternal life even though we don't deserve it. That's grace. It's undeserved kindness. Put it this way. Uh, Let me give you an illustration. I had a friend, a guy that lived next door to me in college that would uh, routinely come over to my apartment and he would eat my food without asking. And not only would he eat my food or drink the things that were in my refrigerator, he had no qualms about eating or drinking the last of whatever it was I had. So he would come over and if I had one soda left, he'd just drink it and he wouldn't pay me back. He wouldn't tell me. I'd just come in later and it would be gone or he would eat the last granola bar and it made me so angry. And as I think back about that, I think, okay, there's several ways I could respond, right? Revenge would be to go to him and say, I'm torching your place, right? I'm burning it down. That's revenge. Justice says, all right, you took my soda. You got to buy me another one. You owe me. Mercy would say, all right, I forgive you. I'll let it go. We'll move on. Grace would be, even though you took my stuff, I'm going to buy you two six-packs of Coca-Cola and put them in your fridge. You don't deserve it because you're evil, right? (laughs) But I'm going to do it. That's grace. And it says, Stephen exhibits the grace of God where even in the midst of hostility and evil and persecution, he extends undeserved kindness because he knows he's been extended undeserved kindness 
by Jesus Christ. And then it says he's full of power. Not only is he gracious, but he preaches the word of God with power. And you're going to see this through this passage that Stephen never backs down from the truth of the gospel. And when it is time to talk to the Sanhedrin even, he speaks to them very directly and forcefully and he calls out their sin and he's powerful in his message, but he always does it with grace. And it's this combination that we often don't see because we tend to err on one side or the other. When we think of power, maybe we think of weightlifters, maybe we think of like the world's strongest man competition where they carry fridges on their backs and that's power. When we think of grace, we think of ballerinas, right? And sweet old ladies. And the two don't always merge together. And yet Stephen has both of these characteristics merged in himself. And so what happens is he begins to preach the word of God. And interestingly, it's the other Hellenistic Jews who begin to argue with him because they're zealous for the purity of the law. And what they say is, Stephen, you are denigrating the temple and the law. Because Stephen is probably preaching something similar to what Jesus preached, which is this, that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. He lived a perfect life. He died on our behalf. He made a sacrifice for us once for all. So guess what? You don't need to go into a temple every day and make sacrifices to be right before God. You don't even need one place in which to worship God. As Jesus says, the day is coming when you will not worship in this temple or this place, but you will worship in spirit and truth. Those who know God through Jesus Christ, the spirit lives within them and you and I are the temple. And so Stephen begins to preach this and the Hellenistic Jews say, you are trashing the temple. You are denigrating the law. You deserve punishment. And Stephen begins to talk with them and it's interesting, it says they can't refute his logic because he preaches with power. And so they move to a different tactic. They start slinging mud. They go and they find false witnesses to stir up accusations against Stephen, to bring him before the Sanhedrin. That's the council that decided all matters of law for the Jewish people. So they sit Stephen down and they say, this guy constantly denigrates Moses. He constantly denigrates the law. He doesn't respect them. That's our accusation. It's a blasphemy accusation. It says, everybody looks at Stephen and I love this. It says, they look at him and his face is like that of an angel. And when I first read that, I have to be honest, when I saw his face was like that of an angel, uh, this is what came to my mind, all right? Because if you have grown up in American culture, this is what you may think of when you think of an angel. Or maybe you think of Michael Landon, you know, from that old Highway to Heaven show, or touched by an angel, or one of those things where angels are real soft and they're sweet, and you look at him and you go, oh man, so cute, right? Uh, that is not, though, the biblical picture of an angel. Usually, biblically, when someone sees an angel, first of all, they fall on their face in fear because the angel terrifies them. Because the angel shines with the light of the glory of God. And then the second thing that usually happens is the angel says, don't worry, don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to talk to you. Stand up. And there's this combination of grace and power. You see that? It's a characteristic we see of Jesus in John 1.14. Grace and truth. Stephen's face shines. It's filled with power. And full of grace. You know where else we see that is in the person of Moses. When Moses receives the law and he goes in to talk to God in the tent of meeting and he comes out and his face is shiny. And the people say, whoa, Moses, do something about the shiny face, right? Because they're afraid. And so he covers the face with a veil. So they don't have to be afraid. It's that combination of grace and power. That's what they see when they look at Stephen. My guess is that most of us are inclined to err either on the side of grace 
or on the side of power. In other words, we err on the side of power when we look around at our world and we see everybody engaged in sin and we shake our fists at them in anger and we say, you're wrong and I'm better and I don't like you because you're a sinner. And I want my people to be in power over you so they can force you to do the things you need to do. And I'm angry at you. And so I'm going to smack you with my Bible words, right? Or we err on the other side and we don't exhibit truth. And we say, ah, sin is fine, all right? You do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do. We don't need to talk about sin, we'll just talk about love. The men and women in the history of the church who were the most effective, Stephen included, were men and women who are mixed with grace and power because they can stand and they can say, yeah, you're a sinner. You're destined for hell. Apart from the intervention of God in Jesus Christ who extended unbelievable grace to you even though you deserve death. And that's Stephen. Is that you? Is that me? Do we imitate the character of Jesus Christ such that the world around us looks and says, I see this combination and I don't know how it can exist apart from the power of God. So Stephen is full of grace and power. Secondly, not only is he full of grace and power, he also has a knowledge of God's word, a deep, rich, abiding knowledge of God's word. In chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? So the high priest gives Stephen an opportunity to defend himself. And what follows is about 52 verses of Stephen's response to the high priest. And I can't read it all tonight. It would take most of the rest of our time. But let me summarize what Stephen does. Stephen begins to go through the history of the nation of Israel. He starts with Abraham. He works his way through the other patriarchs. He goes to Moses. He talks about David. He talks about Solomon. And he makes a few key points. He says, first of all, Abraham and the patriarchs, they wandered around in the desert. And God first appeared to Abraham, not in a temple, but in Ur, in in Babylon. And Moses wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and he carried around a tabernacle and they worshiped God in this tent that they moved around and they would uproot and they moved it around and they didn't have a permanent place all the way until the time of Solomon. And his point is this, you accuse me of denigrating the temple, but you look at the history of your own people and God's always been a pilgrim God. He moves around and he can appear to you and he can speak to you and you can worship him anywhere. The other thing Stephen points out is that from the very day that Moses began to speak, uh, the Jewish people rejected him. They complained against him. They grumbled against him. They set up idols. They didn't obey the law. And to this very day, Stephen says, these men and women, including the Sanhedrin, you reject God's messengers, including your Messiah, including Jesus. So he says, you accuse me of disobeying the law. You really are the lawbreakers because you've never listened to God's messengers. And so he sets up this case And at first reading of this, you read it and you go, man, the Sanhedrin, it seems like they would know the the history of Israel just as well as Stephen, if not better, right? These are the religious leaders of the people. But what Stephen has recognized is that there are themes in the word of God that point to Jesus Christ that they've missed. Now, Stephen didn't learn this in a day. He didn't write this little speech on a napkin, right, before he stood up to speak. He's been saturated with the word of God since he was a child not only saturated with it, but listening to it and submitting to its authority and allowing it to shape and change him. If you asked me to go teach Texas history tomorrow, 
I wouldn't be able to really do it. You know, something about the Alamo, Davy Crockett, maybe something like that. Right? I could wear one of those little hats. But I would not be able to teach the lessons right? because I haven't studied it. Some of you have had the experience, perhaps, of trying to cram all of the knowledge for a class into the night before the test, right? We've all done that. So you don't study for eight weeks, and then the night before you say, oh, man, what's this class? I better open this book. And you open it up, and you try to cram it in, and you read. Maybe you sleep with the book on your head, hoping some of the knowledge will absorb in there while you sleep, and you stay up all night, and you go in, and you fail because you haven't studied, And there's always somebody, I can remember this distinctly in college, there'd always be a guy that would walk out and go, I did terrible on that test and I studied all night long. And you go, well, what did you do for the previous eight weeks? Well, what do you mean? I was hanging out, right? I was going to games, I was reading stuff, I was hanging out with friends. I didn't study for those eight weeks, but I studied all night long. But when that moment came, you weren't ready because you can't cram it in. At this moment of crisis, Stephen knows the word of God because he studied it and prepared for this moment his entire life. So he's ready. And he gives answers that they are not ready to hear. He gives answers that they had not thought about because he knows the word of God. And so the question for you and me is not only do we imitate the character of Jesus Christ in grace and power, but do you know God's word? Do you study it or do you just know what your favorite podcaster says about God's word. Do you know God's word? Do you read it? Do you absorb it? Do you submit to it and allow it to transform and shape you? So when those critical moments come where you're tempted by sin, you know what God's word says and it springs to your mind and heart. When those critical moments come, when you're tempted to fall back instead of being bold, does the word of God fill your mind? Most of us don't know it that well. If you were called upon today to do what Stephen did and to defend the truth of the gospel from the scripture, to talk about the deity of Jesus Christ, to talk about the fact that he died for our sins and rose again, would you know where to go? Or would it be John 3.16 over and over again, right? Great verse. But would you know the word of God in a way that it would allow you to stand firm when those moments of crisis come? All of us will have those critical moments. And to a certain extent, we have them each day as we face temptation, trial, and challenges in our walk with Jesus. And what Stephen does and what we're called to do is saturate ourselves with the word of God. The third thing we see in Stephen's character is a love for Jesus Christ. A love for Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 7 again, verses 54 to 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I've preached a lot of sermons uh, since I've been a pastor, and I've had varying responses. Everybody hopes that your sermon will be responded to well. But I have had some where people fall asleep or they laugh at you or whatever it may be. But I've never had this kind of response. 
right? Stephen preaches the word of God and he tells them, you guys are the lawbreakers. You've not listened to your Messiah. And they begin to get so angry. They grind their teeth and they gnarl at him like wild animals. They go, ah! And then they plug their ears and they yell, ah! And they rush at him and they grab him and they drag him out of the city and start throwing rocks. Now I've had some rough sermons, but no one's ever come up to beat me to death. But that's what happens to Stephen. And yet what's amazing about this is as that is happening, as that is happening, Stephen is not looking at the people. He's not looking at the rocks, but he's looking up. And as they're rushing down on him to kill him, he says, I see the heavens opened and the son of man is standing at the right hand of God. And the writer Luke tells us that there's Jesus and he's standing up at God's right hand in the clouds. And I love this passage because they are rushing in on him. And Stephen says, I love my Savior, my Jesus so much that even as I'm about to die, I'll focus on him. And I'll fix my eyes on him. And it's an interesting passage because all throughout the scripture, you actually see testimony that the Messiah will be at the right hand of God, right? You go back to Psalm 110 and you see that God says to his Messiah, sit at my right hand. And Jesus, while he's on trial, for claiming to be God and claiming to be the Messiah. He says, you're going to see the heavens open and the Son of Man will be sitting at the right hand of God. And he's pictured as being at God's right hand, the place of preeminent authority and dignity. Now, what's interesting is in all these other passages, Jesus is sitting down. Here in Acts 7, he's standing up. Why? Every commentary I read was like, why is he standing everywhere else he's sitting? I think the best answer is this, that if you're in a court of law, an ancient court of law as well, who stands up? People who stand up, especially in front of the Sanhedrin or the witnesses. So if you had a witness on your behalf, that person would stand up before the Sanhedrin and they would give testimony. He's innocent. I vouch for his character. And so Stephen looks up and he sees his savior. He sees his Jesus standing up at the right hand of God's throne, bearing witness to say, Stephen, you're right. Stephen, you're vindicated. Now come to me. And Jesus stands at his, as his only witness when all the world is ready to throw stones at him. And so Stephen fixes his eyes on his savior. And in doing so, He remembers the character of Jesus that allows him to extend mercy even in the moment of death to those who are throwing the rocks. Very similar to what Jesus said as he was about to die, right? Remember, Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Stephen says, Jesus, I commit my spirit to you, into your hands, right? Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As he looks at his Savior, He remembers his character and he responds with grace, but also courage. And then he falls asleep. He dies. Stephen loved Jesus so much because he knew the word of God. Because he believed in the grace of Jesus Christ. He believed in the power of God's spirit to transform lives. And so like Hebrews tells us to do, he fixed his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he endured this shame for the glory that was set before him. See the kind of man that Stephen is. The kind of character he has that allows him in this moment to stand firm. Remember at uh, the wedding rehearsal for my wife and my wedding, 
we had a friend take the video, and a friend was walking around with the camera, kind of filming everybody at the rehearsal dinner. People were talking, having a fun time, enjoying each other, and he panned across one table, and there was a couple sitting there that had just recently gotten engaged a couple of weeks before our wedding. And he pans across to this couple, and everybody else around them is talking, and the people across from them are sitting there looking at them, but they are not looking at anybody else but each other. And they're talking to each other and their eyes are wide and they're just engaged in one another and the other people are not sure who to talk to, right? But they're so in love, their eyes are focused. And you've all seen friends like that. That's Stephen at this moment. He says, I focus on Jesus. Nothing else matters. And that's what we're called to do. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Day after day after year after year, to cultivate the character that allows us then in these moments of difficulty, when we're faced with family or friends or a culture that is hostile to our faith, to stand firm. When we're tempted by everything around us to stop walking with Jesus, we cultivate this character that reflects Jesus Christ. Look at the results of Stephen's character and of his standing firm. The first thing we see, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. All right, the first thing that happens is the persecution increases. This makes Saul angry. He sees Stephen's testimony and he says, all right, we're going to stamp this thing out because Saul is zealous for the law. And so he goes from house to house to house and he drags Christians out. He arrests them and he has them executed. The persecution increases. And so in the face of our testimony for Jesus Christ, there's not always a guarantee that everything's going to suddenly get better. And yet not only does the persecution increase, but something else happens, and that is that the gospel spreads. The gospel spreads. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These men and women left Jerusalem to flee from Saul's persecution, but as they left, they decided to preach the word of God because they had heard and seen Stephen testify to the grace and the power of God, even under pressure. And so they say, I want to be like that. And so even though they still risk persecution, they go out into all of the surrounding regions and they preach the gospel and the gospel spreads because of Stephen's testimony, because of the character he's cultivated that allows him to be faithful in this moment. And traditionally, as the church has grown and as the church has spread, persecution has not destroyed it, but it has allowed it to flourish. Because men and women who know Jesus Christ and his grace are convinced that it's worth more than life itself. And so they go often to their deaths historically, not with anger shaking their fist at their persecutors, not grabbing a gun to try to take as many out before they go down, but also not compromising the truth of the gospel, standing firm and saying, I believe that Jesus died and rose again And there's an eternity for those who believe that. So church father Tertullian, who wrote in his book, Apology, the following quote, he says, you say we are just another spin-off philosophy then. 
Well, why don't you persecute your philosophers then when they say the gods are fake or bark against the emperors? Perhaps it is because the name of philosopher does not drive out demons like Christian does. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. When you chose recently to hand a Christian girl over to a brothel keeper rather than to the lions, you showed you knew we counted chastity dearer than life. And you frustrate your purpose. Because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. He says, look, you cannot stamp out the message of Jesus Christ among those whose hearts have been transformed by him. And so Stephen stands firm because his character has been shaped by the grace of Jesus Christ. Question for you and me then is, are we cultivating this type of character that will allow us to be an effective witness? Are you absorbed in the word of God? You filling your mind and heart with his word each day, each week, each moment so that when those moments come, you can be effective. Are you submitting yourself to his spirit who will shape you and allow you to focus your eyes on him? Like I said, the the odds are good that none of us are ever going to be martyred or killed for our faith. But Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will face trials. You will face persecution. You will face challenges. You will face those moments where it's going to be a make or break moment. But those moments may come once or twice in a lifetime after years of setting patterns. And are you setting patterns now that it will allow you to stand firm? So as we sing a couple of songs and as we close, this is the question. Are you cultivating now that character of Jesus Christ to allow you to be an effective witness when those moments come? Just like Stephen did. By the power of God's spirit in the grace of God of Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you that in Jesus Christ we have the hope of eternal life, knowing that because we believe in him and what he has done, uh, we will one day be with you. Father, we praise you that even now you empower us through your spirit to reflect the grace and the love and the truth of Jesus. And we pray that as we go throughout our days, we would begin now to cultivate the character that will allow us to represent Jesus faithfully when moments of difficulty or crisis arise. Father, when those critical moments in our life come, I pray that we would be faithful. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray be with us now as we go out, that we might do your will faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.